Welcome back, cultists, to episode 61 of Full Metal RPG. I am your host, Brendan Carrion, and joining me today is Adam motherfucking Sink. Adam, what up? Nothing. How's it going, Brendan? It's going. It's supposed to be Ben motherfucking Bailey. We can't yeah. take the motherfucker <laughs> from Ben Bailey. Ooh, yeah. We got to leave that for him. <laughs> it's just Adam Sink. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, don't, I haven't earned the honorific. And then uh, Heather's here, too. So what's up? Oh, hi. You still here? Here I am. Still doing this thing, huh? Yeah. Still showing up for the old Full Metal RPG thing, it's, it's huh? It's mandatory. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Great. Well, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Today, we have a very special episode for you guys, and it is the review episode so many reviews we uh have been kind of skimping on the old reviews we know that you guys like the reviews and we're here with a whole fucking bunch of reviews so just strap in we're not gonna do any of the bullshit that we usually do no way we've been playing no way we've been buying no like hokey fucking banter shit we're going straight into the reviews adam you're leading off with the reviews am i right i'm leading off with low fantasy gaming give it to me i will all right get ready to receive the transmission Low Fantasy Gaming is a system written by Stephen J. Grodziki and available as a free PDF on the website. I believe it's lowfantasygaming.com or as a print-on-demand offering from Lulu, which is where I grab my copy from. It promises to be a low-magic, rules-like gaming system for sword and sorcery adventures. It doesn't promise you a setting, though it does mention several times how dangerous the game is. I've been playing in a low fantasy gaming campaign at our Friday night role-playing club. I can certainly attest to the claims of the setting being low magic. The author is absolutely correct on that point. As far as rules light, I would tend to peg this game as more in the middle ground. It clearly owes a lot to the more recent iterations of Dungeons and Dragons in terms of mechanics and how things are put together. It's not OSR, though I've heard people claim that it is. Again, it may fall somewhere in the middle. The game is absolutely brutal and dangerous. Combat is a pretty tricky thing. And as sword-carrying adventurers, you're bound to find yourself in combat. One or two hits and your low-level character's dead. Combat tends to be very swingy. Party members are either completely unharmed or dead or on the verge of death. Character creation is a simple affair with a couple of different options. You choose from an array or pick uh, one attribute score at 15 and roll 46, dropping the lowest die for your remaining attributes. There are five classes, Barbarian, Bard, Fighter, Magic User, and Rogue, which actually represents a good variety and plenty of interesting choices to be had. Much like in Dungeons & Dragons, each class has special features that apply to just that class, so depending on how you're building your character, you get some say into assigning an attribute or assigning a high score of 15, a higher score of 15 to your primary attribute for that class, or if you just roll randomly for all of them, you pick your class afterwards kind of figure out what fits. There is a luck attribute that's used for rerolls in certain types of actions. The idea is that it gradually runs out as the adventure continues and you have to manage it and think about using it. In practice, it seems to rarely come up. As to utilize it, you need to roll under your luck. So half the time it doesn't even happen because your luck is 10 plus half your level rounded up. So for a first level character, that's 11. The luck mechanic from Dungeon Crawl Classics, DCC, serves a similar role and is much better realized and easier to interact with. I'd likely switch the attribute of luck in low fantasy gaming to work how it does in DCC were I to run the game. 
The magic system is very chaotic. Whenever you cast a spell, you roll a dark and dangerous magic effect. If you roll a one, you then roll on the dark and dangerous magic table to see what horrible or possibly beneficial thing happens. If you pass the check, the chance increases by one for the next time a spell is cast. So then a one or two causes you to have to roll on that table. This continues indefinitely. So as the adventure goes on, it more or less guarantees something bad's going to happen to the spellcaster. Each time you roll a dark and dangerous magic check and have to roll on the table, it resets to one. You lose a point of luck no matter what the outcome was, negative or positive. Skill checks are made by trying to roll under two or equal to the associated attribute. If you roll equal to or under half of the attribute score, you achieve an exceptional success. Rolling 1.5 times higher than the attribute or a 20 is a dramatic failure. Combat is trying to roll equal to or over the opponent's AC. Initiative is highest roll first. Opposed checks are handled by a roll-off. Whoever rolls under but closest to their attribute score wins. So rolling low hurts you here, whereas most of the time it's helpful. There are times when you're making a check to roll under an attribute, immediately followed by making a combat check to roll high to hit something. I cannot stress how much I dislike how this is handled. It is needlessly fussy and confusing. I find the shifting roll format to be a very curious design choice and one I do not fully support. I just don't like it. Healing is handled via short and long rest like Dungeons and Dragons. Short rests have a mechanic where you need to roll a number of will checks from a pool of one, two, or three dice to see if you're able to gain one or more benefits from the rest. Each result spent allows you to recover, say, half of your missing hit points, but so then each application gets less effective. So if I'm missing 14, I save 7. Then on the next one, I save 4, and so on. A long rest is a D6 variable duration, so D6 days for a long rest. Likewise, buying equipment costs a variable dice roll amount of gold which I don't really care for. It feels like randomness for the sake of randomness when other things like living expenses, mounts, and weapons have a set cost. The art in the book's kind of all over the place. Sometimes it's really grim and dark, and other times it looks like fantasy stock art that's just dropped into the text. I don't hate it, but I don't love it. The cover doesn't really give you much to go on. It's kind of a generic picture of an old temple-like building. It's certainly well done and well executed, but it isn't integrated with the content in any meaningful way. Overall, I like the game. It's fun, it's fast, it's furious. My major complaints center around the check system and how all that fits together, which feels awkward when you're playing it. I have a difficult time with it at the table. If you want a fantasy gaming that's gritty and more simplified than D&D, but still gives you a decent amount of rules and crunch to play with and decisions to make, I'd check out Low Fantasy Gaming. It is free, after all. Thank you, Adam. You're that, was, that was really good. Why is it not OSR? You're like, early on, you're like, it's not OSR. People say it's OSR. It's not. Why you say that? OSR to me is uh, simpler and more brutalist. This still has somewhat of a heroic pedigree to it. Um, the ma- Like, there's elements of it in there, right? Like, the magic system's more chaotic, but compared to something, uh, you know, to more OSR-style games... It's not as chaotic as those because there's only really a 5% chance when you're casting a spell the first time that the spell's going to go wrong. Whereas in something like Sharp Swords, depending on what you do, there's a very high chance that spell's going to go wrong. Um, Yeah, you know, and honestly looking at it and playing the character I play in that game, I'm not really sure that if I were to ever play again, I'd want to play a spellcaster in this kind of setting just because it's... 
it being low magic and with the dark and dangerous magical effects and the spells being kind of of dubious utility, it just feels like, well, is that really what I want to do here? Is the spellcaster able to kind of like handle themselves outside of being a spellcaster? Like, is it, is it like in a lot of OSR games, and I know that just, this isn't one, but in a lot of OSR games, the spellcaster gets like one or two spells and then they're just like, kind of like a weedy person with a sword you know that's like pretty much it okay. you know i'm that's, not that's like fair. my character is not great in combat my to hit bonus is plus one right whereas our fighter was a plus four so it's right off better. the bat it's a lot better he's much more effective on top of that he's wearing full plate so his ac is better and he's got better hit points so at first level i'm looking at it and i don't really ever as the artificer, I don't ever really reach that level, kind of projecting out into the future. I'm never going to catch up to that guy. He's just always going to be better than I am because it's a low magic setting. Now, in Dungeons and Dragons, there's that tipping point where spellcasters become amazeballs and everybody else sucks and becomes essentially their meat shields. I don't see that happening in this kind of in, in low fantasy gaming. I, I don't think that will ever be a concern. Now, um, I've seen your game, the, the one that, that you're playing in at the Friday Night Game Club that's being run by our friend William, William Babbitt. Yeah. Oh, man, that game looks so great. It, it, is, so a f- it is a lot of fun. It is Dude. amazingly fun to play in that game. It's great. The characters in it are all a lot of fun. They interact with each other in a very interesting fashion. We have a great group dynamic. Yeah, it's uh, it's like a real treat just to kind of watch that game because it's got the map, it's got the minis, everybody's got the everybody went out and bought the books, everybody's mm-hmm. like flipping through the manuals and like consulting their character sheets. It it, t- it takes you back to like high school it gaming does. watching that, that game. It does. speaks to his his skill as a games master because he engendered that love into all of us. You know, looking at the actual rule book as kind of a cold document, right? Just just interacting with it as merely a text um, that doesn't really shine through. But in his game, it does, which is to his credit, because I went out and bought the core book and the Midlands setting book for it because they he produces additional content like the settings book that are available for purchase. Grabowski or whatever his name is, yeah, right? Yeah, he right. does. The, the Stephen uh, J. Grudziki. He puts those out and you can go buy them and interact with them. So I bought both of those because I wanted my artificer who's in the Midlands book so I could look at it. And um, yeah, he does a great job with that game. And it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. The actual book itself is good. And it costs you nothing to go get a copy of it and look through it and see if it's for you. Even the uh, hard co- the the hard copy is like five bucks, right? Yeah, the soft cover edition on Lulu, when I got it, was like five fifty. Yeah, I got it for five bucks also. It right, crazy. and then shipped, it's a little more. But it's under $10 to get the book in hard you know in physical format dead tree format if you want it right right and so i can't argue against it like for the price point it's really choice it's really sweet do you recommend the midlands i actually have not read that book what that seems to be is much more of just a series of here's a town and a bunch of stuff in that town and adventures you can have you know and then there's the little bit about the different races and classes that are central to the setting of the Midlands. So I can't recommend it without having done a lot with it. If you're looking for a setting to run with low fantasy gaming and you don't want to use one of the ones in the back of the book that he talks about, which actually are like their old school TSR settings and other things, um, Chaosium and, and whatnot, 
then sure, go ahead and pick it up. It's it's not bad. It's like $22 for the soft cover of that as well on Lulu as well. And you can get both of them and you can have a game that you can run. I flipped through it and I thought it looked amazing. While I also cannot vouch for it, I thought it looked like fucking well worth it, especially for like 22 bucks. Yeah, clearly the author believes in the core product. I mean, he's putting the rule system out there for free and he wants you to buy the additional material. Yeah. I like it. I'm having a lot of fun in the game. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's it's with caveats. I want to let people know what they're signing up for when they get into it. So recommended, not recommended? I would recommend it. Awesome. And just understand that the skill check system is a little fussy. So as long as you can grok that and get over it, you'll be fine and you'll have a good time. Solid. Heather, any questions? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Next review. Next is The Void. Developed by Matt Grau for Wildfire LLC. That's just Wildfire, not Wildfire Games or Wildfire Studios, just Wildfire. Copyright 2012, 237 pages. The Void is an interesting game. It's the first in a proposed line from Wildfire chronicling the events they called the Cthulhu Saga. That was in 2012, and to the best of my knowledge, no further Cthulhu Saga games have been developed, so take that for what you will. <laughs> the Void sort of presents itself as a hard sci-fi horror in space. Uh, when you compare it to the only other game I remember from Wildfire, Cthulhu Tech, it certainly feels more real, grounded, hard, and scary. Set 200 years in the future following a massive societal upheaval, the Void chronicles human exploration and colonization of the solar system. A new type of spacefaring engine has cut tr travel time between planets down from years to months. Yet as humanity embarks on this new era, a threat arises from the depths of space, a, quote, seemingly mysterious shard of dark matter, unquote, is moving towards the solar system. This object has been called the Chthonian Star, and in its wake, it is causing dread monsters long forgotten to return and cause problems for humankind once again. In the Void, players take on the roles of investigators opposing this newly awakened forces. The game itself wants to shoehorn you into playing a warden, a member of a super-secret police force assigned to root out and destroy these monsters and save humanity. This is the where the game takes a weird turn back into territory more comfortable to the developers at Wildfire. With each passing page, the game takes on an increasingly anime-oriented feel. The game, is, the game bills itself as action-slash-horror, and in so doing, does the thing that most Cthulhu games warn you against. It encourages you to fight the monsters ripped from H.P. Lovecraft's cosmic horror mythos. This concept might start out kind of fun, or function for a while in a convention or one-shot type environment, but at a certain point, the balance between the feeling of event horizon gives way and the whole thing becomes James Cameron's aliens with Cthulhu monsters instead. Buried in the character creation section on page 85 is a section called Freeform Design. If you take the time to seek out the void, you can use this style of character creation to make characters of any type, belonging to any organization you want. This is what I used for my game, and I found that the results worked out quite well. Utilizing this style of character creation, you can ditch the whole warden angle and focus on investigators, criminals, explorers, or just space truckers in over their heads. All in all, The Void is a game with lots of promise that hasn't lived up to the concept. There are a number of supplements available, all with copyrights of 2012, suggesting that the line is pretty well spent. 
So I wouldn't hold your breath waiting for new material. As of right now, print runs of The Void are exhausted. So the only way to get a copy is through drive through RPG's print-on-demand option. If you're thinking about picking up the core book, I suggest seeking out a copy of the original print run, as the paper is much better and holds the color better on the page, as well as having a more substantial weight. The Void, guys! That sounds right. that's disappointing. It's not that, that it's not like super amazing. I thought it was going to be really cool. I think that it has... Um, Inside of it, it has a, there's a game in there, you know. It's just not as presented. It's not that great. That's, I feel that's I, really disappointing. I like, feel like you have to put a lot of work into it. It is it is disappointing. It's like a huge yeah. I, that's what it's like when you buy a game and it's like you're like oh hey this looks cool and you spend your like thirty to fifty bucks on it and then you get home and you're like oh god. I was really stoked to play so it one day. Do you feel like the default of it is? heroic or yeah okay because yeah. i wouldn't describe because you compared it to aliens i wouldn't describe aliens as heroic well right? a little bit I, I would say it's more i don't even like starship troopers maybe starship troopers ticks more of a heroic kind of box to i me mean than aliens did like that's true okay look in aliens if we're going to descend into movie stuff here well, you brought up the comparison i did <laughs> now in aliens there's like a lot more colonial marines than there's going to be in this you're going to have like a, a table that's going to have like three to five players and each one of those players has like a billion health levels. I mean, let me tell you, these guys have a shit ton of fucking health levels. So mm-hmm. it takes it takes work to kill one of these players. Now, in, in Alien, they, they had all these bodies that they could kill so they could have like a, a lot of people dying all around them mm-hmm. um, but still maintain the core central characters. In this, you know, you've only got like three to five guys. They have to stay alive. Does that make sense? It's true. Yeah. I mean, I guess at, at the end of Aliens, though, the only people who walk out of that alive are Ripley, Newt, and Hicks, right? Like, everybody else is yeah. gone. Everybody's gone. And Hicks is messed up. Bishop's, Bishop's, Bishop's still... Bishop's ripped in Oh, hand. right. Yeah, but he's still functional. But he's like, doesn't, doesn't really well, count. Well, no, he's not, because in the next movie, he's like, if I can't be functional, I'd rather be nothing, and then she unplugs But that's only up. after the ship crashed. That's true. All right, anyway, we're dissolving <laughs> into madness. Okay, so so you feel like it's kind of more of a it's like it's it's like John Sakely's armor, right? I, I Where feel, it's like a guy and he's unstoppable and he's like I, killing I, bugs. Everywhere. I feel like it it's, it wants to be two things at the same time. It wants to be creeping horror, but then it also wants to be shoot 'em up. And I feel like it, Aliens is the best example of a of a movie that's both creeping horror followed by shoot 'em up. Mm-hmm. But once it begun becomes shoot 'em up, then it's not horror anymore. Then it's just a lot of shoot 'em up. And that and this game suffers from that problem in that if if you if you, if you do little adventure arcs where it's like oh let's investigate the monster oh isn't this creepy then at some point in the arc you're gonna get to this tipping point where it's like ah oh, now we start shooting it with machine guns ah oh, run away run away we're shooting it and then it's like well that's not really scary anymore mm-hmm. and also it's going to become kind of samey you know so it's like so what do you really do with that you know i feel like if you take the warden thing out of it which let me tell you also that whole aspect of the game is like really half-baked they they tell you in the game that you're part of this like super top secret organization right but then they give you a little adventure like a little uh, pre-built adventure where the characters are supposed to just like walk around busting out their like warden tags and be like yeah we're space wardens and it's like if they're super secret then like how do they have any authority 
You know, how does anybody know that they're there to have authority? If this sounds like, an awful lot like the Tagers from Cthulhu Tech, like that pedigree is showing through. Where yeah. It's, oh yeah, it's the Tagers. No one knows about them. They're the horrible monsters, but yet we get to go around and do whatever we want and act with yeah. impunity because we're Tagers. Exactly. Which nobody knows what they are. Exactly. That is ex- that. That is one hundred percent the problem. And so in my game, I've been kind of like coming. I've been tr- I've been trying to like still honor the warden thing. I've been like building this plot line where the characters start out being not wardens, and then my long term objective was to turn them into wardens once they had done like a certain number, a certain amount of stuff. They got recruited into the warden program. But at this point, like after having run it for a few sessions, I just don't like the kind of way that it feels like they're being led around by their nose. You this know, I, sounds a lot like Warhammer 40K with Inquisitors. Dude, where it's a lot like that. I don't want you to be Inquisitors. Inquisitors are supposed to be the super secretive organization, but they mm-hmm. walk around everywhere with their rosettes going, I'm an Inquisitor. Mm-hmm. Answer me, heretic. <laughs> you know, and, and what you're at now is the much more compelling version of the game, the one that Dark Heresy favored, where you're hive scum or whatever, and you're just like this low-level guy trying to figure out what's going on and there's yeah. cultists and evil and yeah. fighting it's a bad idea it, it, so it dude, sounds like you figured out a way to make it into that yeah exactly that's a hundred percent what i did is it's just kind of like and it's in, and literally as i was reading it i was like this is very similar to dark heresy this is a very similar kind of thing right and i was just kind of like well we're gonna have to scrub out a whole bunch of this shit because if you don't then there's just not really any feeling of dread or any feeling of threat or anything and you want to have that that sense i mean i took a lot of notes from trail of cthulhu i'm not gonna lie mm-hmm. i put a lot of trail of cthulhu elements into this and that's one of the reasons why i feel like it's working out pretty well for me but so do you recommend it or not oh god it's really hard for me to recommend it because the thing is is that i don't particularly like the ip that they're selling you i think that the ip is like only okay the system's kind of clunky the character sheet's garbage the there's a, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's wrong with it that having been said the system's pretty easy to use and it's very easy to hack and as long as you have that like page 87 caveat of here's how to make the characters you want to make anyway then it's like um it's a very it's it's it, if if you're an experienced GM, you can pick it apart and make the game out of it that you want to make. But if you're looking to go to the game store and buy a full game that's just ready to go out of the box, nope, forget it, don't save your money. That's this makes my- me interested to go get a copy of Wrath and Glory and see if I can run it as like a low level Necromunda style romp. You know, where it's hive scum and they're they're fighting each other. I suspect that you can't. Probably not. But probably I, not. But I but I'm interested and yeah. I may go do that. <laughs> you should do it. You should do it. I'm I'm never gonna dissuade somebody from buying a book. Anyway, Heather, you got a review for us now. What up? Okay, mine is gonna be a lot more casual than you guys is because it's my first. It's my like third ever role playing game I've ever read before. All right. So it's gonna lower be... those expectations. <laughs> just, and then just Jen, don't and then ex- blow everyone away. Don't expect yeah. like a good like, radio review. Razzle dazzle. Okay. Okay. I decided to read *A Last of the Awful Sea*. It's written by Haley Gordon and V. Hendro, and it's written for um, Story Brewers Role Playing. And um, the synopsis on the back is actually pretty good, so I'm gonna read it. Just okay. So it is. The last few awful seas is see sorry is a story focused t- tabletop role playing game about a ship's crew navigating the remote British Isles. 
There, they face a world consumed with suspicion, sadness, and desperation. Struggles for power have deadly consequences. Mysterious disappearances plague the region, and those who seem human may not be at all. So, amidst all this, the sea sends forth strange messages. Will you be the one to listen? It says. So, it's like a really cool, like story-driven role-playing game that I really appreciate because I don't like not having story-driven games. Um, they place a lot of emphasis on character interactions and like plot and um, um, they when I first like the first part of it is talking about like the history historical like um, influences and like how things were back in the 1900s the early 1900s and like how the places that you're gonna go on your ship are like deeply impoverished and you'll like face a bunch of like um, towns full of people who don't trust you because you're an outsider and things like that so like mostly the game is going to be like your your bonds are with people on your crew and your ship and like your the journey you take in the ship and actually one of the mechanics in the game is like is bonds so you choose one person in your crew and you choose like two to three different um reasons why you're bond together and then you talk about it with each other and stuff like that which is really really cool i think and um, each character is the person on the ship. There's, like, no one outside the ship. It's all inside the ship. Only one person each can be, like, a role, like, the captain and, like, the cook. And the, the or there's also, like, a stowaway or something cool like that. Or, like, a scientist going with you to, like, study different places. And each of them can have, like, their own descriptor. Like, you could be, um, like, a seer or even, like, a creature that's pretty cool <laughs> that's the coolest part of, of like that aspect of it i think so that was interesting and i think that you can do it any story like it seems like also when i read it um they want you to do anything you want with it like you can make it set now if you want to but they prefer to have it in the 1900s obviously but you can do it any in any time period and they want you to just have like a really fun time making a story with your friends which i like because that's what i've been trying to do this whole time <laughs> Um, there's also a whole section on the folklore of like, of like the, like British folklore, like sulkies and, um, like harbingers of doom and, um, like sailor superstitions, like all that. So like you understand like what it's like to be on a ship. And I thought that was like really great. And I'm, I'm really excited. I want to run it. I think I was thinking of doing a game of like, like a, a 1900s version of the Odyssey. I think that'd be kind of cool. But yeah, that's my review. If that's even is that a review? Solid. Yeah. Sounds like a review. Is so, there a scurvy system? <laughs> no. No. Oh, also, um <laughs> there's a bunch there's moves. So like anything you want to do, like like say you want to go and like talk to like a guy, like a fisherman guy, mm -hmm. like in the town, you roll you roll dice for that kind of stuff. And there's emphasis also on the storyteller making things worse for people. <laughs> okay. Is it PBTA? Like you roll the two to six? Yeah, or? I think so. Okay, yeah. So it's, I love the cover. Me too. Uh, I call dibs on the scientist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Here, you can look at it if you want. Oh yeah, for sure. No, it sounds really neat. It's one of those ones that I had heard about that I didn't know anything about. Um, it sounds really cool. Yeah. Oh man, there's just some like grim pictures of these villages like the, 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 the pictures are really great like they're very like kind of like metal the art's very depressing which i thought was cool well the whole the whole like feel is like is like a depressing a picture of a noose <laughs> it's very like morose like the whole feel of it is like, is like gray skies and like like muddy like villages and just like a really morose like sad 
time. And a lot of it's photography too, which, <laughs> which brings a lot to the table. In the I, writing. I think it's interesting that, I mean, this is that you find this a lot with PBTA games. Um, there's really no nothing else like it right now in terms of role playing experience. I I don't I, I don't think there's anything else out there quite quite like a last VFLC, right? It's amazing. No, there's not. It's like it's one of the most amazing things I've read before for a game. Anyway, I love it. So, uh, Adam, you have any follow up questions or anything? Do you recommend? I, yes, I definitely do. If you can get it, it's like it's, it's great and it's great for beginners because it explains things very like in like simple terms, but also not like like dumb. Like it knows you're not stupid, but it wants to explain things to so understand it. If you're like new to role playing, which I really appreciate, also. Can I, can I ask you? Can I ask you a question? Might might seem a little weird. What? Okay, this 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 might take a second. Do we got time? All right. So, I was recently listening to a podcast and they were talking about like the male gaze right mm -hmm. apparently this idea was kind of formulated by a feminist who was talking about film and what she was saying is that like the default position of the the prospective viewer of a movie is male oh that, yeah that the camera the camera is designed by the film creators and directors to see things the way a male would. Definitely. Right? Yeah. I'd never thought about that before because, you know, because you're a man. I'm a, I'm a guy, right? Yeah. And um and that got me thinking about role playing games because role playing games I always I always have to think about role playing games. So, um do you feel like I, I because I feel like I look at if I look at my shelves, I can point out the games that I feel like are definitely made with the male gaze, yeah. which is the majority of them to be totes honest. I think some of them are debatable. How do you feel about this game? Because is this is this game is this game accessible to you as a female? Does it feel like it default defaults to a male perspective? No, it feels like it's for everybody. It doesn't feel like it feels like it's genderless, if that's possible. Like, but you didn't feel like it was imposing a particular worldview on you. No. Interesting. Interesting. You have any I, some games like the vampire games definitely feel like they're written for guys do they so i like yeah definitely which ones uh v5 definitely like mega really yeah well the pictures too are like there's like all the, gonna say there's the like a bunch of girls they're all like in that direction like look at my little buddy i'm a vampire Rar. <laughs> wow i feel like there's more here to talk about but we are on the review episode yeah. so we will continue with the reviews do you have any follow-up stuff you want to say about that or just that I, I love this game and i uh want to play it for sure cool well, Sweet. maybe you'll get a chance at uh, Game Fair or something. Oh, yeah. Cool. All right, great. Um, I think Adam's up with our next review, am I right? I am up. So my first review was of a game that considered itself rules light. Now I want to talk about Tiny Wastelands. Tiny Wastelands is the latest released in the Tiny D6 series of games from Gallant Knight Games. Written by Alan Barr, Tiny Wasteland is a rules light post-apocalyptic game that intends to keep things as simple as possible so you can get on with the narrative. The game uses a D6 dice resolution mechanic. To make a check, you roll 2D6. If you have advantage, you roll 3D6. If you have disadvantage, you roll 1D6. Disadvantage always trumps advantage. If you get a 5 or a 6 on either of the dice or any of the dice you roll, you succeed. Anything else in the check fails. It doesn't get much easier than that, folks. Saves are done by rolling 2d6, a 5 or a 6 on that, and you pass. Initiative is 2d6, and you total up the score. 
That's where you land in the turn order. You recover hit points by sleeping. This is all pretty easy to understand. For combat, you get two actions. You can move, attack, focus, or evade. You can take multiple of the same action, for example, a double move or two attacks. Focus makes it so your next attack hits on a 4, 5, or 6 roll. Evade lets you roll 1d6 for each incoming attack, and on a 5 or a 6, you nullify the hit. Damage is handled per weapon type. Building a character involves picking from an archetype, selecting three traits, picking your weapon proficiency, assigning gear, and assigning your drive, which is your character's driving or guiding principle. Traits do things like give you advantage on certain checks, allow for re-rolls, allow you to make an attack under certain conditions, or give you extra damage. Everyone starts with a survivor's kit and 10 clicks the in-game currency. You can only ever have 7 traits maximum, including mutations, as you level up. There's a couple of options presented for character advancement, but neither of them make a character some unstoppable killing machine, which tends to plague other games. This is likely a function of the simplicity of the core rules. The Games Master section has rules for creating enemies, as well as charts for scavenged items, vehicle rules and upgrades for a Mad Max-style apocalypse, and finally, the Enclave. The Enclave is the home base of the survivors, essentially the arc from Mutineer Zero. Enclaves had their own traits, and managing the Enclave is part of Tiny Wastelands and the core experience. To assist in this, the game has an Enclave deck, which I would recommend you purchase if you intend to run Tiny Wastelands. The cards are really well made, and the art is pretty slick. At the end of every session, the reaping phase occurs, where players can build and upgrade, after which the Enclave faces a challenge, and you check to see what happens. This is probably the most crunchy part of the book and system. I want to avoid getting too far into the weeds on it, but it's there if settlement building and resource and population management are things that you want to add into your game. It's also where you work on your vehicle if you're going that route. The remainder of the book, which is more than half of the page count, is micro settings. These are idea factories for the GM to get your game quickly up and running. They don't add a ton of utility for me personally, but the few I read were interesting and well done. I prefer to build my own wasteland and go a bit weirder, more gonzo than some of what's presented here, but there's inspiration to be found if you want some help getting things moving. You have quite a bit of freedom to do what you'd like with the game system as it is incredibly light and it stays out of your way. Aesthetically, the art is really well done. Longtime contributor Nicolas Giacordino, which I hope I am saying correct, handles the art duties as he's done for numerous other Gallant Knight games, and he has an evocative comic book style that works incredibly well for the subject matter. The cover by Tanho Sim is likewise excellent. If you want a completely stripped down minimalist rule set, you can't do much better than the Tiny D6 series of games. If you want something crunchier, there's always Mutineer Zero or Gamma World. Tiny Wastelands is a welcome addition to the lineup and one I happily purchased, giving my love of post-apocalyptic games. I'm looking forward to getting it on the table and in front of my players, as I think they will enjoy it as much as I do. Sounds sick. Yeah, it's really great. Um, the GM screen is this is this little tiny kind of document because you I don't love really it. need much of a screen when yeah. you're running a minimalist style very game. Adorable. It's it so is. cool. It's totes adorable. It's just a little. It's, it's just a little adorbs. tiny trifold, and like you could put it inside the book if you wanted yeah. to. Yeah. Oh. The enclave deck is really well done. It's the cards have a tasteful thickness, um, <laughs> and it has the the Nicholas 
Giancordino, I'm going to butcher that guy's name again, Giacondino Art. Um, he does a really great job with it. Like, I can tell why they use him for a lot of their books. I fucking love that guy's art. It it's is great. sick. It is so good. What other books does he do? did he do for them? Because he didn't do Tiny Dungeon. He has done Tiny Supers and Beach Patrol, both of which oh. are not out yet. But it seems like they've settled on using him for a lot of their properties. Dude. And I got to say, you could do much worse. His yeah. stuff is phenomenal, and I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, uh, I passed on this on Kickstarter, which was a huge mistake. Um, uh, when it becomes available for just re- you know regular purchase, I'm totally gonna snap one up because uh, game looks fucking sick. Do you um do w- w- where do you put it in terms of preference with the other games against those other games? So because I know that you're kind you're you're, you're kind of like a you know small yay or something for like this kind of shit yeah there you go so i still love gamma world and i know a lot of people don't like that edition of gamma world i still love it it's still my top um just because it hits all of the right notes for me um this one's right up there with it in mutant year zero like you know the version of paranoia i had is towards the bottom and there's a couple other post-apocalyptic games the white wolf version of gamma world and a couple others that I would put much lower that I don't like as much. Um, This is probably in the top tier of them. I think that in terms of what it does and um, the way that it makes you play, it hits me where I live. Like I like the way that they've done things. You know, I still feel Gamma World was ahead of its time with regard to the cards and a lot of the peripherals it brought to the table. This has cards. Mutant Year Zero has cards. This... I like because it doesn't require me to buy specialty dice. Mutineers are required me to buy specialty dice. Gamma World lets me just play with what I already have. Um, so I still love Gamma World the most because I'm a Gamma World junkie and I won't be a, you know, I'm not, I'm an apologist for it. I love it. I think it's great. This is still up there. I like it a lot. I think it's a solid game. I think they made solid decisions and, you know, if you want to run something that's really narrative with a really stripped down rule set that's accessible to new players, this is probably what I would go with. Yeah, this like tiny series of games is it, there's just like nothing better for just getting to the table. Like it's like I, mean, I think when we talked to Alan Barr, he was like, "Oh, the whole idea is you keep it in your bag, and if you somebody can't make game night or if you're at a con or something, you can just play." Right. And and if that's the design principle, then it then it succeeds tremendously yeah, because ex- it does that exceedingly well. Yeah. You know, it's it's not the it's got all the micro settings. It's not the most fully fleshed out, but at the same time, you can have a lot of fun with it. You can do so many things with it. It supports just a gamut of things. And and I think the, the whole fact that the last half plus is all of these micro settings kind of attests to that. Mm. You can do so much with it. You oh can yeah. Play many different types of apocalypses with it. I love the little micro settings in the tiny series of books. They are cool as fuck. They are, I mean, they're just like really great idea starters. Even if you don't use them, you could be reading one and be like, well, I kind of like I will X percentage this of this. Exactly. Exactly. They're so great. I hope, I hope that there's like a tiny cyberpunk at some point. That'd be so great. I hope he, I hope he hadn't thought about that till now, but that would be cool. I, I backed tiny supers. I didn't, I didn't, oh, I don't nice. think I, I didn't get super, I didn't get the beach patrol one. Um, just because <laughs> I don't really have an interest in Baywatch or Baywatch nights, but, um, I don't know. We'll see. That one might be really great too. Maybe I'm missing out. Cool. Heather thoughts. This game looks pretty awesome. 
But it seems like it's super combat heavy. Is it? So anytime you're in a post-apocalyptic setting, there's probably going to be combat. Mm -hmm. But the question is, the combat, what role does it play? Like, did you, you saw Fury Road, right? Yeah. Did you feel like the combat got in the way of the narrative of that movie? Or did Mm -hmm. it serve it? I think it served it, I think. Right. And so that's kind of how I feel about it is it's in any kind of post-apocalyptic setting, you're battling over resources, Mm -hmm. you're battling over, you know, in that case, it was the brides of a Morton Joe or whatever it was. Um, Strife is kind of inherent to these games. So yeah, it, it can be combat heavy as far as survivalist rules and everything else. Most of the traits and mutations are focused around combat. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a fair assessment. It, there is an assumption that combat will come up during the game. The Enclave, which I haven't really interacted with, again, there's the kind of this assumption that there's going to be some kind of combat or threat yeah. to it that causes your resources to diminish. So it's kind of like... Um it's 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 heavily inspired by the sort of like Mad Max style post apocalypse movies, Waterworld, The Postman. Yeah, it, it definitely kind of feels stuff. like that. Well, like why are you chortling at Waterworld? The movie's awful. <laughs> because did you say awesome? It's what? kind of that. It is kind of the uh, the standard <laughs> of the fiasco movies of Hollywood and everything else. I, I don't dislike Waterworld. I thought you know Dennis Hopper's in it. He's always great. Yeah, that is true. You know, he's a lot of fun in that movie. But I no, it definitely Waterworld. assumes that kind <laughs> Guys of... Guys eat a dick. I'm sorry. <laughs> it definitely kind of assumes that post-apocalyptic world, right? Where it's... Yeah. It's not... But then again, you look at like Children of Men in the Road. There's a lot of fighting in those. In the road? Um, yeah, I guess oh, not. There's so not really... I don't think yeah, there's any. Right. Children <laughs> of Men is what I'm Children thinking of. Children of Men, definitely. Children of Men, there's a lot of fighting in yeah. the road, not so much. So I guess if you're going to run the road... Maybe don't use it. <laughs> use the last awful scene and make it into it. There you go. <laughs> you can <laughs> do that. Books. That's actually a good takeaway. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Yeah. I was about to say, has anybody done a post-apocalypse PBTA game? <laughs> yeah, they have. Yeah, they have. It's, there's, there's, it's there, called Dungeon World. There is one. <laughs> is there? What's Maybe, it, what is it called? Uh, name escapes me. PBTA powered by I the... the uh, <laughs> Armageddon. Yeah, I don't remember. That's that's a weird one. I don't know. We'll come back to that. Yeah, we'll people, we will yeah. let our fine listeners know if we find that out. Yeah. Look, there's only so many diet cokes a man can drink in one day. What does that right. do? Anything? Huh? What? It's like twenty four. Twenty four hundred. That's why it comes in that in the pack. Yeah. Because <laughs> two twelve packs, twenty four, one for each hand. All right. I'm gonna do another review. All right. Who's ready for a review? <laughs> oh, I thought you meant like. 24 hands no no, no like, two hands two anyway. tw- uh, 12 pack in each hand 24 diet cokes <laughs> it's the most you can carry Jesus. you're encumbered <laughs> oh sweet jesus all right, all right. Have another one. so we got another <laughs> review coming up here on the review episode guys um <laughs> the next the next subject for review is crimson blades dark fantasy role-playing second edition by simon washburn for Beyond Belief Games, copyright 2016, 126 pages. To begin, Crimson Blades is fucking great. On one hand, it's an OSR game, so the subject matter it engages with is fun and accessible. On the other hand, it deals with OSR ideas in a way that you probably have never seen before. 
Crimson Blades takes the concepts in Stormbringer slash Elric and scrubs out all the proper nouns so you can play with that stuff and those ideas without committing to Moorcock's hallowed IP. If you listen to the show with any kind of regularity, you'll know that I'm a huge fan of Ken St. Andre's Stormbringer, especially its first, second, and third edition iterations. But I will say, there are times I want to play something that is like Stormbringer without playing Stormbringer. But Stormbringer's character creation system is linked directly to the IP. For those such occasions, I now have Crimson Blades. There's really only one type of demi-human in Crimson Blades. These haughty, Melnibonean-like elf creatures called Dendralesi. The Dendralesi class is like the Melnibonean in Stormbringer in that it's a little bit warrior, a little bit sorcerer. Otherwise, all the major fancy classes are here. Weirdly, there is a monk uh, called a wayfarer, and that stuck in my craw a little bit, but that's another story. Also, Ken St. Andre's amazing beggar character class is absent, and that is a poverty to be sure, as the beggar is, intentionally or not, one of the most compelling character classes in any game ever. Boom. (laughs) What makes Crimson Blades really stand out is its resolution mechanic. Without going into an in-depth explanation, each character receives a small pool of dice made of d6s for situations based on their class. When you roll to do something, you have to meet or beat the target number set by the GM on the d6s. It's really easy and fun and unlike any other OSR game I've come across. I love it. Each character class also gets a number of special abilities similar to a character in D&D. This keeps your character's actions diverse within the group. There's no skills. Instead, the book simply reads, quote, Normally the GM will just allow characters to do things as described by the players and, if they seem reasonable, they will happen as described. This is particularly true where a character is of a class that should be assumed to be able to complete the task naturally or where the thing they are doing is fairly straightforward. End quote. This is the greatest summation of how OSR games should be played I have ever read. If I had my druthers, it would be painted over the entrance to every game room in every game store that stands. The alignment in-game is still based on the law versus chaos, though I prefer Ken's description of those philosophical forces, and the magic system is still basically built on summoning. Now, that being said... There's this list of generic D&D-style spells that spellcasting characters get access to. At first, I thought this was a cop-out on the part of the design, like a capitulation to 4th edition onward iterations of Elric. But then, as I sat down to run an impromptu one-shot with the game, I realized that the spell descriptions lined up with the generic spells that you'll find in System Agnostic and otherwise OSR Adventures allowing you to run spellcasters and traps from any adventure with only a single book on hand. The last part of the book contains a monster manual with a ton of generic sort of stuff that you you would use to populate an adventure. There is also a campaign setting that has some of the flavor of the Young Kingdoms, but also draws a number of other recognizable influences as well. Best of all, there are some NPC classes in the back that can easily be allowed by the discerning GM as PC classes, and these really get into the meat of dark fantasy role-playing. Crimson Blades is available for purchase on lulu.com and comes with this GM's highest possible recommendation. Crimson Blades is my new go-to OSR system. I hope you check it out. So you're do you saying, recommend it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you like this game? Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't clear before. Do you, do you recommend it and you enjoy it? 
Are, are you being sarcastic right now? No, I'm kidding. I know no. you are. <laughs> what is sarcasm? <laughs> what, what? What do you have to say? It's a great game. It's really fun. It's like it's it's an easy read. The some of the wording in it, some of the way that he words things, it's kind of like you have to maybe read it a couple times to figure it out. The whole like um the whole pool system that I was talking about is based on this idea of hit dice. So the words hit dice actually mean multiple things depending on the context that they're in. That is confusing. He should have come up with a different term for that because you because when you go into a game and you're using a piece of role-playing vocabulary like hit dice and you think you already know what that means and then you're reading it in this different context and it means something else, it's fucking confusing. You have to unlearn this certain thing in order to relearn the new thing. That was a mistake. Um, also, this Wayfarer monk class. When I saw that it was called the Wayfarer, I was like, oh, cool, it's the beggar. It's not the beggar. It's a fucking, it's a fucking goddamn D&D monk. I was like, that, that's lame. But uh, otherwise, some of the stuff that he did with the basic classes are fucking rad. It's a fucking rad game. I love this. I love this game. I love it. <laughs> it looks well loved already. Yeah. Like it's oh already yeah. Kind of. Oh yeah. I got this already curling and yeah. This I got this new thing where I like um, <clears throat> don't treat my books nicely anymore. I just like carry them around Ugh. and bend them up and just flip through them and shit and. I really I do that like, with, but, the, but with my own like sense of well being, <laughs> huh? That's what I do. Oh, oh, I, I see just, what you're saying. I just treat that not nicely and like, throw I, that around. I just, I just really just feel like a sign of a good game is a well used game, you know. So my current copies of you uh, are not wrong. Yeah, <laughs> because I will tell you, you know, my copy of Star Wars Second Edition is is beat up. Right. And it's great because it looks like Slave One. It looks like Boba Fett chip. And that's <laughs> rad, you know? Exactly. Like, I don't want it to be all pristine and nice because I've yeah. got a bunch of Star Wars books that look all pristine and nice, which tells me I've never used it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. 100%. So, I mean, right now, my copy of Crimson Blades is looking a little bit kind of a little worse for wear. My copy of The Void is beat to hell because I carry it with me everywhere. Yeah. Like, I, I just, I've also been reading, I mean, I know we're kind of, you know, we're kind of winding down here. So, if you got, do you guys have any questions about Crimson, Crimson Blades? It sounds great. I'll probably check it out. I oh, mean, yeah. Lulu's pretty generous with coupons, so oh yeah, you can always get things at a reasonable price. Yeah, you gotta. <laughs> you can you pick up sharp swords and sinister spells while you're there too. Yeah, no doubt. Our friend Diogo's sharp swords and sinister spell, spells. Which, um, interestingly enough, one of the pieces of art in the addendum for that is the same one that shows up. Oh, on the intro page of Low Fantasy Gaming. Or... I had this weird The Matrix is glitching moment because I bought them both at the same time and they came in the same order where I flipped through his first and then I opened up Low Fantasy Gaming and that <laughs> oh, picture was no. on there and I was like, well, uh, oh, weird. I, I feel like I just saw this and I went back and I looked at his and it was there and I went back to Low Fantasy Gaming and it was there and I went back to, to Diogo's Addendum and it was there and I went back to Low Fantasy Gaming and it was there and I was like, is this, am I having a stroke? Do I smell <laughs> well, burnt toast? Or- he, he, when he was first getting rolling, he was using a lot more stock art. But like as he's as he's ramped up his games, and he's like, I mean, oh, Jesus. I'm not dogging on him no, by any no. means. It was just one of those weird right, moments. Right? Yeah, because you bought both the games was, at the same time. Right? Because I got them, and I was going, oh, it's like the that Bader Meyerhoff phenomenon, right? Like I see something, and now I see it again. Mm. And I'm going to see it everywhere from now on. But uh, yeah, so if we're done talking about Crimson Blades, um, I've also been reading uh, Itris by. Um, that's a really interesting read that I'd like to talk about on this show sometime. And I've also been reading uh, 
Fantasy Flight Star Wars. So, oh, which point, one? Because there's uh, three. Edge of the Empire. Okay, because there's Edge of Empire, Force and Destiny, and then Age of Rebellion? Yep. Age of Rebellion. That's I have correct. Age of Rebellion in hardcover. I had the beta of Edge of Empire, which soured me on the whole experience. Wow. Because of how they mishandled that. And then <laughs> uh, Force and Destiny, which I don't I don't care about Jedi. So yeah. that was never very appealing to me. Yeah. Um, but but you mentioned proprietary dice when you were talking about uh, this is tiny true. wastelands. And uh, I've actually recently been kind of coming around to proprietary dice. But that is a subject for a different time. I don't really want to crack into that now. But I, I, I feel like that's a, that is definitely something we should discuss. Because People who seem to grok that system and understand the dice really seem to love them. I will say as an outsider, it's immediately off-putting. Yeah, I think it is. And when we first saw the proprietary dice trying to show up, it was like kind of this eye-roll thing of like, oh, trying to do a grab so people got to buy your dice, can't just buy the fucking generic dice anymore. And I get it. I get it. I get it. However, that once you start getting into those proprietary dice systems, especially the Fancy Flight one, I can't speak to the um, Mutant Year Zero one, but the Fancy Flight one... It allows you to do things with it that you can't do with regular dice. You just can't do it, you know? And I love that. I think it's so cool. It's like, it's something, it's so unique. I just wish they'd found a different way to do it than by, hey, put a bunch of stickers on your existing dice. Slappy, like. Well, I mean, they make their, they make the dice. They did, but when you first, when you first got the beta book. Oh, yeah. It was put stickers on your existing dice. I mean, that was a beta. Like, I don't want to put... I don't want to put stickers on my existing dice. (laughs) Why would I do that? You can go and buy blank dice. You probably can't buy blank D8s, though. Where do you... Yeah, but where? Like, the game stores in my... You know, in this side of town don't sell blank dice. So... Yeah, some of them do. do I mean, they, they sell blank D6s. Right. You can't buy blank the other blank Star Wars is blank D8s, blank D10s. Yeah, D12s. Yeah, it's like you can't... Can't get those. I don't think there's D20s, though. Anyway, yeah. whatever. That's I digress. Does anybody have anything they want to say to wrap it up? Any, any last thoughts on reviews? Heather was going to review Vampire the Requiem 2nd Edition Core, but she feels like she's talked about it too much. So. That's all I ever talk about is vampire. Yeah. I'm always like, hey, guys, what about vampires? But I like you talking about vampires. It's cool. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I'm trying yeah. to branch out. You're, yeah, talk about what you're We, we were in. supposed to do a character creation for your game. Yeah. We're, we're doing that? In the next week, what or is so. that it's like? coming up? Saturday, three three days Sweet. from now. Yeah, yeah, busy day Saturday coming up. All right, All right guys. Well, uh, Adam, you want to see us out, dog? Sure thing. If you want to get in touch with Full Metal RPG, find us on Instagram, Full Metal RPG. You can DM us there or act with us on our posts. We're pretty active on Instagram. You can find us on Facebook. Search for Full Metal RPG. You can message us directly. Post on our wall, interact with the things that we post there. We're relatively active there as well. There's always FullMetalRPG.com, our website, where we post our latest episodes. You can post comments there. If you want to reach us by email, FullMetalRPGOfficial at gmail.com. Find us on Patreon. Search for FullMetalRPG. Back us. We're looking to get some upgrades to what we're doing here to allow us to do actual plays and some other things we appreciate your support we love our patrons and you get automatically entered in all drawings for books the latest book we gave away was vampire the masquerade fifth edition on halloween no still less. sitting here still sitting here if you won that one hit the previous episode if you get hear your, your name book. 
get in contact with us and get your book because I will tell you, we have a pile of these books and they're going to go to our Patreon backers if the people who won them don't hit us up before yeah. the end of the year. Yep, that's right. So um, we have one more episode left. For uh, the year, we have one more episode left. Mm-hmm. And as always, check out Game Depot Arizona. Our sponsors, Game Depot in Tempe, Arizona, the corner of McClintock and Southern, by the McDonald's and the YC's, by the Restore and the Planet Fitness. If you've heard anything that sounds interesting to you, go hit them up. Let them know we sent you. If you go in there because of us, let them know we sent you so they know that they're getting some return on the love that they give us. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. And that wraps up this review episode. I want to thank Heather. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. <laughs> I want to thank Brendan. What up? And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in on our journey into all things role-playing. We hope this provided you some value and that you go out and spend all of your pennies on (laughs) the books that we presented to you here today. Uh, See you in the poorhouse there, cultists. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good night. Good night, everyone. 